All righty. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on a, uh, a great Sunday uh, afternoon here. Uh, Arjun, I've sent you an invitation. Uh, just by accepting it, you'll be able to come on with stage. Jack Van, the song goes out to all the just give me a second here. And um, I thought, uh, you know, we couldn't have possibly had a better start to the spaces uh, with having both SACD guys on stage here, both of the uh, SACD operators uh, in the Canadian Sedimentary Basin uh, co-hosting along with me. Uh, Arjun is a fellow that I've been trying to get uh, uh, come and join us on our spaces for a while now. I'm super excited about this space. Um, Arjun has got a Substack, yeah, in which he shares his thoughts uh, uh, in, in relation to energy. He's got the three-part series where he talks about the role of Canadian uh, energy in the world stage. Uh, and uh, he's joined us last spaces last weekend with Bob McNally, and we briefly got to touch on a couple of the points, and uh, we felt that it was a little too intriguing uh, not to be able to book his space exclusively and, and discuss some of these matters a little bit further. So what I've done here is I've gotten a chance to go over um, Arjun's last substack and I've made a couple of key questions and notations of those things to go over. Uh, so what we'll do is um, we'll we'll start over with a brief introduction of Arjun. Arjun will introduce himself and a little bit about his background and then what we're going to do is we're going to proceed with uh, a couple of questions from myself and uh, uh, my co-hosts and then we're going to open it up to the audience. Uh, and field questions from the audience and get a nice little conversation discussion going. Uh, I'm anticipating somewhere between an hour, hour, 20 minutes. Nothing nothing too long that would discourage Arjun from joining us at Future Spaces. So uh, that's the idea here. Uh, but, but nice, short, and sweet for us to get the uh, general gist of things. And perhaps once uh, the, the fellas in the space are exposed a little bit of maybe uh, Arjun's material, we could schedule a Future Spaces down the road. But without further ado, Arjun... Thanks so much for answering our call and your passion for Canadian energy. Thanks for joining us uh, on the stage here today. If we could just start a brief introduction uh, with yourself, that would be just splendid. Thank you. Uh, terrific. So I've been, uh, first of all, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you to you and Mark, and I think Razor's a co-host, for inviting me. And I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s, so social media did not come naturally to me to the beginning of my career. But I've been following you guys uh, on Twitter, and Canada always had a special place in my, my heart. I was fortunate to have covered especially some of the major oil sands producers. I, I was primarily a U.S. energy equities research analyst, but always enjoyed covering Suncor, Canadian Natural, and Sonovas back in the day. And so people can see my profile on LinkedIn, but the first 22 years of my career uh, were as, as primarily a solid equity research analyst, the bulk of which uh, was at Goldman Sachs. Um, I did retire from Goldman in 2014 uh, as a partner of the firm. And in the last eight years, I've been sort of in a more behind the scenes kind of role as an advisor, as a director. And again, people can see the various affiliations on LinkedIn. I will say that I'm definitely here speaking on my own behalf. Please uh, don't blame any of the companies I'm associated with for anything that I have to say. But starting in November, I started up a super spiked on Substack. It is for free. It's arjunmurdy.substack.com. And I think the question is why? I was, you know, I was definitely enjoying the more behind-the-scenes kind of roles I've had, again, as an advisor or board member. And while I loved my career uh, at Goldman and dealing with especially some of the leading institutional investors, even that role was it was a much more private role, right? Uh, you're, you're dealing with some of the top uh, clients out there, Capital, Fidelity, Wellington, SAC, and I, I loved interacting with them. But it, but it wasn't really a public role, per se, even if the media um, sometimes highlighted some of our notes. And so I, I, I think what 
prompted me to start Super Spiked, and again, I started it last November, was really just, I don't know, my dismay, for lack of a better term, on how people were talking about the energy transition. And, and I just thought the narrative was badly off track. And maybe I'll just list a few points here and then can turn it back over to you. But this idea that energy transition means you should kill oil and gas supply, and mind you, only in certain places, uh, Canada, the United States, maybe Europe, and that somehow that will lead to less global demand is simply absurd. I, I actually don't understand at all that mindset. I, I can appreciate that if you're, if you're an environmentalist or a diehard climate per person, you'll say there are aspects of oil and gas industry I don't like. Maybe you don't like air pollution. Maybe you're concerned about CO2 emissions. Uh, and, and maybe you think that's the most important thing. I actually respect the different people. I'm someone who's pro-economic growth, and I think uh, that is one of the great things about fossil fuels. They've enabled kind of, kind of miraculous developments in terms of population, in terms of the number of people no longer living in poverty, all these kind of good attributes of fossil fuels. Um, but it, but if, if that's not your thing um, and you want to be against it, that that's fine. Why would you want to, though, focus on Canada and the U.S. and and then thereby increase dependence on rest of the world. That, that's kind of frustration or sort of you know confounding issue number one. Um, the the second point would be uh, people need energy. They need it for everything we do, and and I think people forget that we've had low energy prices for the previous decade. There's a lot of things uh, you take for granted. Electricity, as someone says, does not come from your wall socket. <laughs> it comes from all the power plants and all the research you have to go into development. And I think the world had forgotten about that and it's now getting reminded. You know, and so there is a need to provide energy availability, affordability, security, and reliability. And those are the key things we're solving for. We want to solve for it with as small of an environmental and climate footprint as possible. But I feel like the world had forgotten this. Um, and I personally didn't think it was okay to just stay on the sidelines. And so if I don't like one extreme, which in the U.S. context we might call progressive, Malthusian, climate-only perspectives, I, I will say that we do need to deal with the externalities. And that's something we've always dealt with with fossil fuels. Uh, we used to have lead and gasoline. We don't anymore. We used to have higher sulfur contents. We don't. And it's a good thing we don't. Right? We used to have a brown... When I lived in Denver when I went to college, there used to be a brown cloud that came over from, I believe, the LA basin. And then they took steps to alleviate that. That's a good thing. We are for clean air. We're for clean water. And now I think we are in a world where there is a need to address the negative externality that comes from too much CO2 emissions, right? But we still are solving for energy. And I think there's a need to educate. I think there's a need to be vocal. But again, that fundamental premise that somehow killing oil and gas supply in Canada and the U.S. is a good thing, I find it to be absurd. And I think it's leading to a lot of the challenges we're having today in terms of energy insecurity unaffordability, unavailability, and unreliability. So all of that was my motivation for creating Superspiked, uh, and it has led me here to your call today. So maybe I'll stop there. So, hey, I've been happy to, to take your questions. And, and, and Arjun, I think that segues into, you know, the, the crux of, of the discussion here today. And I think, you know, you, your experience in, in cell side, as well as, you know, being a and one of the super majors out there, you've got you've been afforded an opportunity to be able to see maybe a, a top-down approach into what's taking place globally from uh, uh, all the uh, collective energy producers. And so the, the, the essential 
um, topic of the discussion that we're trying to get to is the role of Canadian energy pr uh, production on the world stage. So if we can begin a little bit with that uh, and, and what role you feel that uh, is afforded to them. And, and you talked a little bit about their necess necessity um, relative to other forms of production. If we could just start with that, Arjun, that would be wonderful. I think it's a great place to start. And frankly, it's it's really been one of the most baffling developments, I'd say over the last two years, especially as the energy sector has started to recover and prices have rebounded and we clearly have a very challenging situation in Europe. Why Canadian oil and gas specifically isn't viewed as part of the solution? And I know this is a fairly knowledgeable audience you have, so I'll try and um, shortcut to get to the key differentiating points. But I think the tagline that you hear from both investors, and I'm talking generalist investors, non-Canadian specialists, so probably not the audience listening to this Twitter spaces per se, but you also hear from an environmentalist is that this is the highest cost, quote, dirtiest barrel in the world. And I think neither of those claims is true, and that perception needs to change, which is not to say there is not room for improvement. There is room for improvement throughout the traditional energy sector, including Canada. Uh, but I, I would argue those are both kind of the false premises that gets both investors, again, I'm talking generalist investors, as well as environmentalists to de facto conspire to say, we don't need Canada. You know, and so I, I, it's almost ridiculous to have to go back to this, ahead. but when you have a U.S. president, I'm not, I'm not trying to get into politics here, um, we, can, we can perhaps be sympathetic, I'm going to be generous here to say, why doesn't he deal more with the shale producers? Why doesn't he go to Texas? Let's just say there's a bunch of domestic political reasons that I think he should look past, but, but maybe that's why he doesn't. To, to go to Saudi Arabia, to talk about lifting sanctions on Iran, to talk about lifting sanctions on Venezuela as the first orders of business without going to Canada, without figuring out ways to partner with our closest ally and neighbor is preposterous. It is a massive oil sands resource that I know this audience appreciates and a massive natural gas resource, both of which the world clearly needs. Um, it is long-lived. I think Canada's oil sands in particular, so we're talking about the crude oil side, is an excellent complement to what is inherently shorter-lived U.S. shale. Now, I'm, I'm personally, uh, my personal view is that there's still quite a bit of running room in the Permian Basin. I think the Bakken and Eagle for the U.S. are more mature, so maybe they can plateau. Maybe they'll fall a little bit. I'm sure others on this call will have stronger views. But the Permian, I would be in the category that for at least the next five years and perhaps to as long as 2030, we're going to get appreciable growth out of the Permian Basin from the kind of the major producers that are in that basin. I think it's going to be profitable. And I think the 500 barrels a day on average uh, would be the type of growth rate I think we can have from shale on a multi-multi-year basis. Uh, but it is short-lived. It needs continuous investment. You can't ever stop or you get rapid declines. And, of course, my view on the premium could be wrong. There's some very thoughtful people out there who think shale will mature more quickly. Um, I, I don't want to misstate anyone's views, Sohead, but I, I certainly recommend people read folks like Lee Gehring and Adam Rosenzweig. And I know they had a great piece out on the Marcellus and the natural gas views. I'm not 100% sure exactly what their shale oil views are. But there are a number of folks who have some very interesting perspectives that shale could mature. Again, it's not my view of the Permian. I think it's got a lot of running room. But to have a long live resource that I think is going to be, I think it's an excellent complement. Um, the idea 
that the world would want to be dependent on solely Permian, Brazil, Saudi, and UAE growth, is, it's absurd. Why would you want to li limit yourself to short live shale resource, even if someone like myself thinks there's running room, to Brazil? I love, I used to cover Petrobras. I love Brazil's pre-salt and deep water. But clearly there's geopolitical uncertainty in terms of whether the investment climate in Brazil supports long-term resource growth. Petrobras has historically been a very technically capable company, but there's been ups and downs on the investment climate in Brazil, and we don't know how that will evolve over the next, let's just call it, 30 years. And then Saudi and UAE, clearly the Middle East, even if those countries are more stable, uh, is going to have its challenges in a world that is seeing war in Europe. There's uncertainty in China. It's hard to think that that makes the Middle East a more stable place. So the idea that you want to go Canada, for what reason? Because some people claim it's high cost? Because it has this lazy tagline in the media that it's the, quote, dirtiest barrel in the world. And every time you see an article, there's some picture of a 1970s open pit mine. That mine is inexcusable. That's an environment of Canadians, Canadian companies develop their resources today. Um, Profitability-wise, this idea that this is the high-cost barrel. I understand how that math is created. I used to contribute to that top projects report that Goldman still publishes. I think it's an outstanding report. And, and others produce similar things. But the simplistic IRR approach to project portfolio uh, investing, it, we know that is not the only metric. We know that from shale. Shale promised 30 to 50 to 100% rate to return at $50 oil last decade. They generated a 0% rate of return at $51 oil. So we know that the IRR in those calculations, as conveyed to broad people, isn't necessarily accurate. And when we look at full cycle profitability, I prefer return on capital employed. Different people prefer different metrics. That's totally fine. But the Canadian oils, the big four Canadian oils, have proven to generate better profitability than shale EMPs. And again, think about that. When you look at any of those project cost curve analyses, shale always looks better than Canada. Yeah, so then how is it that the Canadian oils have produced at worst the same and frankly better profitability, better free cash flow, better returns from what is a live asset? And frankly, they've done almost as well as the super majors, which classically, and this may predate the careers of some of the audience here, They've classically generated superior profitability. So long-lived, profitable. I think the third, third key component is the Pathways Alliance. And it's early days for that. But I actually think that's a very important development that the, I think it's the top six uh, oil sands producers have put together to try and ensure that Canadian oil sands is CO2 competitive on a life cycle basis. And this gets, this gets to that point of the tagline, dirtiest barrel in the world. So if you look at CO2 emission data, and this is still data that will get refined uh, as the world continues to study this. This is from a report that my former colleagues at Goldman published a couple of years ago. When you look at scope one emissions, Canada looks like, or excuse me, Canada does seem to have the highest CO2 relative to other areas. But we all know the main CO2 issue from oil comes from combusting it. When people drive their cars and SUVs or airlines fly their planes, uh, or Amazon's prime deliveries driving endlessly around your neighborhood. That's where CO2 from crude oil, um, that's where the issue comes from. When you adjust, therefore, on a life cycle basis, Canada is only slightly worse than other regions. And I would argue it's immaterially worse. So if you focus just on the scope one data, it looks like Canada's CO2 emissions is a lot worse than other regions. 
When you look on a life cycle basis, it's negligibly worse. When you then throw in the Pathways Alliance, which still has a long way to go, they've got to develop their CCUS hubs and do all the things they're talking about, but I think it's a good role model. Frankly, other basins should emulate what Canada is doing. I'm thinking the Permian Basin, thinking other U.S. basins and other parts of the world come together to address the challenges that do need to be addressed. Industry is not perfect. Over 50 years, it's become environmentally better, and we need to continue to push forward to ensure that these barrels are part of healthy energy transition. And so I think that tagline, dirtiest barrel in the world, is not accurate. It is misinformation and credit to the Canadian oil sands companies for at least trying to take steps to address it via the Pathways Alliance. And if they're successful, I'd argue they will be no different than everyone else. And then as you get data on especially non-US, non-European, non-Canadian parts of the world, uh, it defies logic that oil facilities that were developed 50, 60, 70 years ago somehow are lower emissions than Canada or the US. I, I, I'm going I'm to be polite since this is a public space, but I, I think we might need better data on the rest of the world's CO2 emissions. And I'd argue it is lazy, lazy reporting on the part of analysts, media, whoever does it, to call these the dirtiest barrels um, in the world. I actually argue these are the most ESG-friendly barrels in the world. Uh, geopolitically, I, I, I wrote it in a joking manner, uh, but it's a serious point. The idea that Canada is going to be invaded or invade someone else, um, I would argue geopolitical risk is really low. And that is not true for these other producers that I've, I've, already, I've already mentioned. I think you have to ask the question, why is it that when people talk about ESG, when they talk about energy transition, why is Canada and the Arctic, which de facto means Alaska, why are they most singled out? And I, I'm so have I'm not a conspiracy theory person. And I worked at Goldman Sachs. I'm affiliated with a bunch of major institutions. I'm the opposite of a conspiracy theory kind of person. I'm pretty mainstream. But I, there is this question of why is it that Canada, why, why, can, I mean, forget about Alaska, friendliest country in the world, Canada, safest country in the world, right? Taking these steps to address their CO2. Look at traditional health, safety, and the environment. That is something U.S., Canadian, European companies have long emphasized. I think you all know there's been shareholder activism in Suncor because they've disappointed on some of those metrics. They've had some, unfortunately, very tragic situations with, I believe, a number of people losing their life, and that was unacceptable. And the CEO was had to had to leave, right? So you know, so um, it's unfortunate that happened. It's also being addressed. Are we sure that's happening in these other countries that you're going to be dependent on if you continue to try and kill Canadian and U.S. and Alaskan supply? Right. So ESG, that topic, substantive ESG is needed. Virtue signaling ESG is what I and I think others push back on. Um, and I, I will say that these are going to be the ESG most friendly barrels in the world. And the final point, and sorry for such a long answer, so hey, is I, I do think we need this concept of more good barrels and fewer bad barrels. So I wrote a note pinned to my Twitter profile on March 12th. Right now, when you look at North American, and apologies to anyone in Mexico, but um, I mean here, US and Canada, supply demand, it's broadly balanced. I think there is a very reasonable path to getting US, both Canada, to be able to export 10 million barrels a day of crude oil by 2030. Five of that comes from the US. That only requires 0.3 to 0.5 growth. 0.2 to 0.3 of other liquids growth, which might be Alaska, it could be some Gulf of Mexico, it could be some natural gas liquids. 
I would like to see, or part of that math does assume Canadian export growth can double. Now, at some point, you run against time. These are long-life projects. So 2030 is a round number year. Um, so let's forget about round numbers, as I think uh, Canadian professor Vaclav Schmiel, who I love, uh, recommends, and just talk about what's possible. Can we double the historic growth rate of Canadian oil exports over some time frame? And then lastly, I do support efforts to reduce domestic crude oil-based demand uh, through efficiency, through more stringent fuel economy for SUVs and those types of things. But I think if you do those things, you actually can offset total Russian and Iranian exports. Now, they may still exist in the world, but at least the U.S., Canada, and its allies will no longer be dependent and held hostage to those barrels. And to me, from a public policy standpoint, a healthy it is critical for Canada embracing Canada, uh, profitable barrels that are going to be ESG friendly and frankly competitive on CO2, they are absolutely part of the energy transition. Uh, Arjun, uh, thank you so much. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm right before I open it up to uh, my co-hosts that, uh, that I'm going to have, uh, you know, that would love to share, input some things uh, into what you said. Uh, I just wanted to hone in on something that you've also included in your podcast, in, in your uh, substack, which is just the notion that uh, you know, it's something that a couple of us on, on the spaces that have regularly participated in these discussions have honed in on, which is the profitability of the Canadian energy producers relative to the American counterparts. Well, why do you think that is just, you know, when we speak to other Americans in this space, um, there's just this, this misconception, oh, it's just high, you know, high cost barrels. They're just not unprofitable. It's just not, you'd rather go to offshore drilling than consider some of these uh, Canadian companies for uh, for investment. I don't know, just, just, if we can just address where that misconsumption comes from, um, that'd be wonderful. This, this is a critical question you're asking, Sohead. And, you know, I've, I've been looking at this sector since 1992 is when my career started. And for anyone that's looked at this sector over multiple decades, this issue of project economics relative to full cycle economics has always been an issue. There's always been a disconnect. And where we first noticed it was in some of the shallow, this is again, early 90s, shallow Gulf of Mexico plays. And then for people who remember the Cotton Valley Reef trend and some of those plays, there was always this talk of high IRRs. IRR is absolutely a legitimate metric, but the idea it's the only metric, that's problem number one. And then the bigger problem is are you including all the costs or just some of the costs? And the nature of the project is going to determine naturally how much of these costs are you including. So when you do an oil sands facility, there's no chance, <laughs> there's no chance you just get to count steaming one well. <laughs> or um, it's not possible to do a well IRR. I mean, I guess you could, uh, but um, certainly not for a new facility. There's no chance. You could just do a partial cost analysis. And so when you do an oil sands facility, you tend to include all of the costs. And by the way, because it's oil sands and it comes out pretty heavy, form of bitumen and what have you, there's inherently a need to recognize you're going to have to upgrade it. And if you can't upgrade it, you're dealing with the differential and how are you shipping it. If you're developing an oil sands project, you are naturally thinking about the totality of getting it to market and everything that goes into it. Because something like U.S. Shale, the business is so disaggregated, where there's a company that owns the acreage and kind of that's the EMP companies we all know, and all they think about is sort of getting the well down and getting it online. Uh, different companies drilling the well, 
there's a different company that's doing the gathering, another company that's doing the processing, a third or fourth company, I don't even know up to it, that has the pipeline, someone else refines it. You know, it's light, sweet oil, so do we really care about the upgrading? Like, and then never mind, the stock declines 50, 60, 75% very quickly. So you actually got to keep drilling. And by the way, you're never done buying acreage, right? Um, oh, and by the way, the wells are not homogenous. They're far more heterogeneous. And so we can't just take the best uh, reservoir example and the geology from it. And oh, by the way, if we downspace enough communication, did we really, you know, like, you can fool yourself into just looking at disaggregated project costs as opposed to holistic. And so LNG is a lot like oil sense in that respect. You can't just drill a well in guitar and say, hey, the IRR in this one well that flows whatever, 50, 100 million a day is great. No, you've got to build the LNG plant and all the trains, and then you got to build these specialized ships, and you got to make sure it, you know someone wants to buy it on the other end. And by the way, that they have a regasification terminal and all those things. So when you develop projects that take into account the totality of the costs, and then don't sanction the project until you're comfortable with all that, I, all those into why the oil sands companies are surprisingly competitive. Even though everyone, and I mean everyone's project cost curves show on an IRR basis, it's quote higher cost. And you can see that most clearly in shale, right? The distinction between shale and oil sands is your great sort of current example. The, the, the company said at $50 oil, they were going to do 30, 50, 100% IRRs on those wells. And let's just say they did do them. Let's say they're not, let's say they did do them. It translated into a 0%, 0% return on capital at $51 oil because of all the other costs, because of the fact that you drill the well. This is, this is unbelievable. I never heard this term until the last 10 years, but you didn't complete it. That, that's unheard of, Soheb, in the sort of the history of drilling. We're going to drill it, but not complete it. What's the rate of return on that? You drill the well, but you didn't complete it. What's the rate of return? It is not 100%. It's not 50%. It's not 30%. It's negative 100% until the stupid well comes on several years later in this case. And now they've drawn down those ducks. Now we're in the other end of it, where we have, again, sort of fake low costs because you've drawn down your duck inventory that you previously drilled. You know, and so the companies that historically have done the best job of thinking of full cycle economics were the super majors. And again, for the younger audience here, these have been sort of bad companies for the last 10 years for reasons that are probably not worth going to in this call. But classically, they've always thought about the full cycle economics. And I am encouraged that more EMPs today, either because they really believe it or because they know investors really have hated them or some mixture of the two are taking more of that sort of full cycle approach. What is baffling is most people that work in the oil industry are pretty smart. If you're an engineer, if you're a geophysicist, if you're a geoscientist, I promise you, they're smarter than me. I'm a failed engineer, so I, had, I, I couldn't cut it at Cornell Engineering and I've got a finance degree. I'm smart enough to be a finance guy, not smart enough to be an engineer. I don't know why at the US CMP companies, there was not more discussion and debate about how wide of a gap we had between what they were telling investors the returns were and what the full cycle economics are. And so again, I would encourage everyone to always look at some notion of total corporate metrics. It does not have to be my return on capital employed, which is a metric I like. People might like different ones, but you just can't include some of the costs 
And the beauty of the Canadian oil industry is you've always had to include all the costs, including transportation and getting it to an end market. It's a, it's a critical question. Thank you for asking it. Absolutely. I'm going to pass it over to my co-host, Mark. Go ahead. Arjun, uh, I just everything you've said is uh, is so spot on. So I'm I'm a subsurface AG engineer by trade. I've done drilling, uh, field production, production, and then the exploitation reservoir side of it. Um, it's bang on. It's amazing how literate you are. Uh, it makes sense looking at your background, but especially with the nuance of uh, full cycle and you know comparing IRR recycle ratios and. Uh, payout period and how they kind of there's a there's a bit of a false uh, equivalency when comparing them with other projects uh, and you're bang on about that so something that you know i would do uh internally when i would be looking at uh you know we, we'd come up with a metric of half cycle because like you said you, you can't not uh include the plant costs the central processing facility costs uh the steam costs uh the the uh, the labor costs the fuel costs for a well when you're trying to do a you know a single add or a, a step out or an infill those all have to be included right so you're getting the full cycle uh economic hurdles that you have to meet but if you're you know so we do a half cycle where we'd remove the you know the the plant costs and just associate the you know the the you say you have 60 60 wells just one out of 60 uh you know associated costs with the well to make it work internally and call it a kind of a half cycle cost but those wouldn't be the metrics that would be compared to say a shale project and as you said you know a shale project is only considering that it's considering like a one well or two well or maybe a seven pad uh cycle uh, seven pad project as the full cycle when you know you have a whole drainage box area that you need to do eventually, and and as you said, I think it's disingenuous not to include the the number of wells maybe that you have to drill in order to keep going, or else your declines are 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 going to take over and you're going to end up with a completely negative NPV. So you, you've touched on it completely, and you know I have very little to add on that respect because you're just so educated in it. It's a, it's great to hear that, especially from someone from the states and on the on the finance side so uh you know you don't give yourself enough credit for the engineering aspect but uh it's amazing and and uh i definitely think if you haven't followed you on super spike you have a, a youtube uh channel as well and i think that's great because you rep the ir canadian uh, oil and gas uh uh, swag as well so definitely uh follow you there my question is and it's a bit of a maybe i'm pontificating but you know when we talk about uh, Canadian crude, Canadian heavy, which comprises roughly 80 to 83% of uh, Alberta's production, uh, in situ resources being the primary source of that, um, we, we have to talk about egress, right? And and egress is always going to be the limitation, I think, that that was the big issue when uh, you know, line three twinning was delayed by a year and we had to, you know, I was, I was looking at apportionment and you know, SAG-D is always the one that, that's easy to do because you don't lose your barrels. You kind of defer them. You, you push your tail end of your type curve out. Uh, uh, and you, and you, you obviously, you know, you lose your, your IRR decreases, your payout period extends uh, exponentially. But those factors are affected by commodity pricing as well. And one thing I noticed, you know, when I'm doing my discounted cash flows and NPVs, uh, especially when I'm doing my reserves valuations on these thermal properties, uh, is the oil sands royalty and it's a big factor but it flips uh, there's a huge difference between pre payout and post payout 
and how much uh, these projects pay out. And, and there's ways to kind of side skirt it. You can continue adding to your CapEx and, and remain in a prepayout scheme. Uh, one way to make, like, do you think one way to maybe become more ESG friendly on the surface, even though, as you said, we do a lot to uh, in, incorporate ESG and we're very, uh, you know, ESG heavy in everything that we do in, in our R&D in the oil sands is maybe work out a deal with, uh, you know, egress, future egress projects to, because the pipe is always going to remain full. Like we know energy is life. It never stopped. Even at 2015, you know, in 2015 to 2018, the pipes remained full. It, they were too full at points, right? That was the reason for apportionment, especially during turnaround, is maybe, you know, take a tithing or, or a, you know, a, a tariff for that and, and create some sort of, you know, diversification fund that focused solely on, uh, you know, nuclear uh, build out, uh, you know, just anything to do with that, because, you know, we talk about all the, you know, the the stuff that, you know, especially heavy oils doing with uh, reducing SOR steam generation with co-injection. I, you know, one of my major projects uh, uh, was, uh, you know, test piloting uh, uh, solvent enhanced SEG-D. And you could see the reduction in SOR and the implied uh, reduction in natural gas and just, uh, you know, emissions uh, at, at an SOR that's maybe 40 to 60 percent reduced with co-injection. But it's still producing oil and people don't really they, they just can't get over their own biases and heuristics about, you know, oil, especially oil sands. But I'm wondering if they, you know, royalties are highly dependent on the price of the commodity and your actual payout and when you actually pay out the project. But if maybe the, the oil sands, the Canadian oil sands, uh, you know, consortium, COSIA, reach out to, you know, the federal governments and, and, uh, and, and the midstream companies and say, hey, we'll commit to building these, uh, these egress options. And a portion of that has to go into, you know, uh, uh, you know an ESG friendly and diversification portfolio that's managed well and helps build out nuclear in places and helps get past the nimbyism of where reactors can go and actually, you know, makes fruitful endeavors towards diversification. Maybe we can shed the, the whole, uh, you know, high emitter, get rid of uh, oil and gas. There has to be a binary, you know, flip one off to get the other one on uh, stigma around us. It's, and again, it's a bit of a long, you know, pontification, but hopefully you kind of get my just, uh, my, my main meeting uh, message out of that. And I thank you for your time and I appreciate you listening to my rambling here. No, th thank you, Mark. And I appreciate your, your comments there. And I, I think, I think you touch upon two things that are worth addressing. Um, one is this idea is diversification, um, and what traditional oil companies should be doing or not doing. And, the, and again, then the issue of sort of egress or, you know, d developing pipelines, which is an issue not only for Canada's oil sands, but also if we're going to really continue to expand LNG export capacity, both out of Canada, but including out of Appalachia and the some of the restrictions on the pipelines there. And, and it's, it's a huge issue. So I, I would say first on the issue of diversification, um, I, I am of the view that companies should figure out ways to address the substantive parts of ESG is the governance right. And it is good at some companies. It's not good at other companies. Clearly needs to be addressed in some situations. Um, when we look at the social metric, um, why is it that every single US E&P company in shale, all of whom are pretty narrowly geographically focused, 
all had, for the most part, the entirely same strategy of sort of, quote, drill, baby, drill. And might they not have benefited from some notion of diversity? It does not have to be uh, ethnic or racial per se. It doesn't have to be gender per se. Maybe uh, more people from, uh, you know, uh, New Jersey or other parts of the country need to be on more of these boards. Maybe that, that would be good diversification. I don't know what it is, but whatever that diversity of thought that was lacking, these are the kind of things that I think companies should address. But do I want any of my companies to have to do other stuff that they know nothing about? So if you generated a 0% return on capital or a 3% return on capital or even an 8% return on capital in the business, you supposedly know best. Why should an investor have any confidence in your ability as a company to either invest directly or indirectly, as the case may be, in other stuff? So I'm generally not a fan of sort of diversification, I'm going to say, for the sake of appeasement. And I, 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 so I, I do not believe in appeasement. I believe in compromise. I believe in listening to a diverse set of viewpoints. And I appreciate my engagements with many folks who are uh, in the environmental crowd, in the climate crowd, who are left of center. I get a lot out of interacting with a lot of those types of people, and I'm better off for it, right? But that is different than appeasement. Um, and, and so I think there is a need to embrace the Canada oil and gas, and, and excuse me, Canada oil sands and natural gas through LNG are part of the transition solution. So one of the narratives you hear out there is that we need short-term oil and gas, but not long-term oil and gas. And this is the reason, or this is the basis, by which some of the folks, and I, I, I keep going back to political terms, I apologize, I really would rather avoid it, but leftists on will say shale's okay because it's short cycle and it'll come on and then it'll decline. And so when that magical day happens, that crude oil demand has in fact rolled over, the shale will decline with it and all will be good in the world. And it's a, it's a, it's a ridiculous perspective. The idea that somehow building an oil pipeline out of Canada is too long term is insulting to the billions of people who the billion people who have nothing, the three billion people have very little. There's maybe only one to two billion of us that are truly energy rich, and never mind the two billion people coming into the world. And the idea that those people should all be dependent on Saudi and Russian and Iraqi and Iranian barrels is completely absurd thinking. So that you know, so there is a need to listen to different points of views. There is a need to compromise on some things, but there is not a need for appeasement. And the world is going to need to embrace at some point. We'll see when it figures it out. But Canada, friendliest country in the world, a great neighbor and ally to the United States, is part of the solution. And part of the problem, which I touch upon in the note, is this notion of nationally determined contributions, which is amongst the bad portions of climate math. The idea that the CO2 emissions from your oil and gas should count in your contribution. The world is much better off with Canada, which is population-wise a small country. I think it's 30 million people. I believe I'm close on that number. The idea that somehow they should uh, forego the oil and gas that the world needs, good oil, ESG-friendly oil, increasingly CO2-neutral oil via Pathways Alliance, profitable oil, because Canada has some accounting math, a population of 30 million people that they need to, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. We should be embracing Canadian oil full stop as part of the solution with no apologies. And I would argue that when I look at climate math and I spent, a, I'm not a climate expert, I'm a historic Wall Street analyst, as you know, but as I spent time studying climate math, 
how scope three accounting works and how these nationally determined contributions work. Those groups lack diversity when they put those formulations together. There is no chance anyone who understands anything about energy or business would have agreed to scope three or NDCs. There's no chance. It's, it's absurd. What, what, you know, Amazon Prime, is that somehow the responsibility? That's scope three emissions for Exxon. Is that somehow the responsibility for Exxon? Is the Ford F-150 somehow the responsibility of Suncor or Chevron? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have Ford F-150s. My point is that scope three has got nothing to do with an oil company and NDCs that de facto limit Canadian oil and motivate the Canadian government and the U.S. government to say, no, 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 that's long-term oil. We're going to need, let's just say we build a new Canadian oil pipeline tomorrow by some miracle, or more likely three to five years from now by some miracle. The idea that that pipeline is going to last for 30 or 50 years, thank goodness, we're going to need it. We're going to want it. And we have to embrace it. And we have to recognize it. People cannot live in a fantasy land that somehow in 10 years, this is all going away. It is not. You don't have to listen to me. Listen to Vaclav Schmiel and smart professors who know more about this. Listen to, listen to actual scientists. Right here is science we should believe. Uh, it's a physical business. You don't get to wish, you know, you don't get to wish this stuff away. Um, and, and so we need to embrace that can and so when do federal governments, which are a big part of the problem, push back on obstructionism from environmentalists that is directly and narrowly targeted at Canada and US pipelines? Why is that okay? Why does that not receive any pushback? Why do we enable? exports de facto get shifted to other parts of the world. And I'm making a judgment here. I'm American. I'm making an American's judgment that I would rather have Canadian oil coming across our border than being more dependent on Russia or various Middle East countries. And I actually love Brazil, but there's been enough geopolitical volatility there that I don't want to be dependent on the pre-salt uh, going forward. I'm a huge fan of Mexico. I was blessed at Goldman to spend a bunch of time there towards the end of my career, and we go there regularly on vacation. But it's been a challenge to get uh, that country to be able to invest, to Bemex to be able to invest in what is clearly almost certainly a robust resource. So I, I, I really think one needs to start the conversation over and say, what are we solving for here? We're solving for adequate, available, affordable, reliable energy from good places, of which Canada is clearly, clearly number one. I think in terms of what is possible is, and again, I think this is where I think Pathways Alliance is more important. I think this is my opinion. Mark, you may have a different view than say creating a fund that supports new. I'm pro nuclear. I think that is something that the federal government should support. However, that transpires. I, I don't think we need um, oil sands or shale or anybody else's revenues going to support nuclear directly. I think you have to clean up your business. And the business of oil companies, and something they deserve criticism for, is methane, right? And that's more of a shale issue than it is an oil sands issue. Uh, and they're taking steps. I think OGMP 2.0, I hope I got the acronym right, clearly a step in the right direction. Um, but that is something companies should proactively solve. I think it's not okay to develop shale oil fields without having the gas takeaway capacity ready. So permitting reform to ensure that your gas pipeline capacity is there. And then as a country or as an environmental movement, are you, you know, or as, a, as an industry, are you willing to sacrifice production growth if the gas pipeline takeaway end up having to flare? I do not think flaring is okay. 
unless it's for an emergency reason. Um, and so I think there are reasons to criticize the oil industry. But again, I, I will give the industry credit for taking steps to solve it. And I'll give Canada specifically credit via the Pathways Alliance. Now, it's early days for that alliance. I know they used to be called something different. And then they combine with a bunch of different organizations to get them all under one umbrella. I know it's early days. I know that there's been some positive news on some of the um, CCUS tax credits that the Canadian government may allow. So it sounds like there is some positive movement in the right direction. There's a need for transparency. There's a need for communication. That is not something that comes naturally to the oil and gas industry. It's an introverted industry. In the same way consumers have taken industry for granted, industry's taken for granted their importance to the world. And once you're 2% of the S&P 500, no one cares anymore, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so there's a need for the industry to be more vocal and not defensive, but to be positive and proactive and not appease. And again, it's one of my motivations to creating super spiked. Uh, you know, so again, I think egress is a critical issue, but the starting point is U.S. and federal government, Canadian and federal governments are going to have to recognize we want long-term Canadian oil. And we need to get away from this language that somehow long-term investments are bad and that we only want short cycle sell. It's ridiculous. There's no chance you want that. There's no chance that's good for Americans or Canadians, never mind the billions of people who do with far less than any of, than any of us do. Sorry for the, the long answer, Mark. No, uh, absolutely no worries. And we're, we're going to head off to, right after we head off to uh, Alberta Garbage, a uh, drilling engineer in the Canadian Western Sedimentary Basin, what we're going to do is we're going to touch a little bit about, uh, you know, the last famous oil call you made, your thoughts moving forward, uh, along with maybe different metrics uh, that, that may be, you know, pros and cons as they relate to shale and uh, uh, oil sands. So I'm going to head off to Alberta Garbage, and then right after that, we'll, we'll proceed with uh, with that discussion. Go ahead, Albert. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Arjun, for uh, coming on here. Uh, loving loving it. Uh, I'm, I'm coming to you from an operating SAG D-pad right now. So uh, it's always an exciting place to be. My, my question is, I guess, around your thoughts on the impact of the cost of capital and the cost of capital differential between Canadian oil and gas and U.S. oil and gas the impact of that on the, you know, on the shale revolution versus the relative somewhat stagnation of Canadian oil and gas investment and how you see that going into the future. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alberta Garbage. I do love the Twitter names and it is awesome to know that you're on a operating SAG D oil pad. That is, uh, that is really pretty cool. Um, you know, so in terms of the cost of capital, so I think so my, my guess is it's probably unfavorably neutralized at this point in time. And so what I mean by that is there's no question in 2015 to 2019, that era, it's post $100 oil period, we crashed. And of course, to my shock, in 2015, tons of equity raised uh, by shale EMPs, clearly signifying to your question, a low cost of capital and nothing raised in Canada. And I mean, any trip, I love going to Calgary. I've been very fortunate to have generally gone there at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. Um, and to see how increasingly depressed the oil industry community was there, where even shale post the $100 bust. And so in the $50 oil period of 2015 to 19, it did not, it was nowhere near as depressed as Canada was, which I think is the cost of capital advantage that shale did enjoy in that period. And of course, not to keep going back to this, but 
You're telling your investors 50, 100% rate to return, but you're issuing equity to drill. <laughs> I don't think you have to be a mathematician to say that if you're getting 100% rate of return, doesn't that mean you're getting all your cash flow back pretty damn quickly? Why would you need to raise all this equity? That, that to me, was, doubt to me was the nail in the coffin and how ridiculous the expressions of return on capital were um, for shale in that era. And by the way, and it's a full sidebar that I know is going to get lost in this conversation, but I actually believe shale can be profitable. So while I've spent a considerable amount of time picking on how these companies have portrayed their returns, I actually believe it actually can be profitable. Um, and frankly, in the shale industry is moving towards that type of model. And there probably are a handful of companies that it might have been hard to see the results, especially if it was buried as part of a larger organization who did do a good job last decade, or at least a better job than the bad companies. And we're on track to do a great job going forward. So I actually believe going forward, um, now that the well IRR model has been sort of debunked as a viable strategy, I do think shale will be more profitable going forward. Right now, I would call the cost of capital dis, um, differential to be non-eventful. Basically, no one is raising equity capital of any consequence. There isn't tons of private equity interest. I'm talking generally, not specifically, just as a general comment. And by and large, investors on both sides of the border are saying, kind of, don't invest, give us all back the money. Uh, and maybe there's been some more debt offerings in the U.S. Someone else probably on this call would have these numbers better than, than I do. But So I think the um, I, I think U.S. shale has um, negative, you know, their cost of capital has gone up to the level of the Canadians in terms of everyone looks sort of similarly bad. And, and I'm sure they may not a covering analyst anymore. There may be covering analysts who will say, hey, the Canadians are still a little cheaper. There are lots of factors to consider. It can sometimes be as much art as it is science. But I think shale definitely no longer has that big cost of capital advantage. Now, to address your point, going forward, there's still more of an acceptance that we, that we can and should have some shale growth. I mean, again, even, you know, even U.S. administrations talk about shale you know, should grow or can grow. Um, and there is some notion, people might debate how much the Permian can grow, but I think everyone expects there's going to be Permian growth. And maybe because it's in Texas and adjacent to export markets and a robust refining sector, the question of pipeline permitting issues isn't really an issue. Again, I think there is some questions on sort of gas takeaway capacity. And if you really don't want to flare, you're going to darn well better build out that gas takeaway capacity or the rubber's going to meet the road here in probably the next 12 to 18 months. Again, someone else on this call may have the exact time frame, but it's, it's something like that. Um, so there's a, there is a notion that shale is allowed to grow. Um, and so we're not at the point where either is really trying to grow. I actually was shocked that on these two few, maybe not shocked at this point, but I guess I may be pleasantly surprised is the better phrasing, that on these two few calls, the U.S. has kind of just bumped their budgets, mostly for inflation, whether they bump them enough for the inflation they're definitely experienced, we can probably spend some time debating, but no one has gone back to any notion of a growth mode. So right now, I'm going to, I'm going to say the cost of capital spread is basically neutral-ish. There for sure is a go-forward acceptance that shale should grow by some amount, and I am strongly arguing that Canada needs to be part of the solution. Now, again, some of that's not totally the fault of federal government policy. There's no doubt we need pipelines. There's definitely a need to push back on pipeline obstructionism. But I do think a lot of investors say, hey, you guys stunk, all of you. 
anywhere in the world stunk last decade. I don't want long cycle investments. So investors don't want long cycle investments. And I actually think there is a time now for certain companies that have a competitive advantage in what they're doing. Now you have, you have to believe that. That's a lot of things to believe in. Where selectively investing in some longer term projects is going to be differentiating. You do not want to invest in long cycle projects eight years into an up cycle. That's what the super majors did over 2011 to 14. It was a, a, an effing disaster, right? The cycle started in 2002. They waited until 2010. Way too late. Way too late. We are in what? Year one, year one and a half of this cycle. It's going to be very bumpy. I, I subscribe to a super ball mindset, as you know, more than I don't like using the super cycle language when it comes to all prices per se. I do like it for returns on capital, return on capital, super cycle, oil price, super vol environment. Um, and I, I, I think in that environment, volatility is going to scare long-term investors off. Canada needs long-term investments. That's the nature of obviously SAG-D and, and, and for that matter, mining, if people are still going to do that, but probably SAG-D. Um, and it's going to take a brave company and they may suffer in the marketplace. And so that's something to think through. But if you're going to invest, you're going to want to invest earlier in the cycle. Um, and so anyway. So uh, um, before before I proceed, Alberta Garbage, if you wanted to, uh, you know, if there's anything else you wanted to say, feel free to do so before we proceed with uh, the next item. No, I just I, I appreciate you uh, addressing that, Arjun, and uh, really, uh, really great to hear your thoughts here. Thank you for calling from the field. I think that's really awesome, and thank you for doing so. We've been getting uh, that. Uh, we've been privileged enough to get, to get that regularly from uh, a couple of individuals, you know, on site, you know, telling us what they see. It's it's been absolutely wonderful. Um, Arjun, the next thing I wanted to share is, you know, the last time uh, I guess maybe you've been responsible for 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 coining uh, the, the term super spike uh, when it was an un unpopular opinion at the time, where you believed that oil would get to 105, and you know, and, and a lot of sort of what drew your attention to that based on. You know, what I've come across is uh, the energy producers at the time were missing production. Would you be please take us to, you know, that point in time and, and as it relates to what you've seen that made you make that call and how it relates to uh, the, the macro outlook looking forward, what, what, you, what you see, maybe sort of the differences you see, well, what was taking place at that time versus what's taking place uh, at this time and maybe the outlook maybe for the next five or six years or maybe even on the short term if, if you'd like up to you, Arjun. Absolutely. It's a good, it's a great question. So let me, maybe I'll go back to that environment because there are a lot of similarities mindset wise. So again, my career started in 1992. And of course, the previous super cycle was the 1970s, was the Arab oil embargo. I was, you know, old enough to remember, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, the odd even gas, you know, uh, license plate days and standing in gas lines with my mom and, and, and my dad probably too. I remember I remember my mom specifically for some reason. And that, that environment seemed very unique. And then you had the big growth in CapEx, the North Sea came on, Alaska came on, uh, the North Slope, so forth, and the big bust. And then my career started in 1992. And so we were kind of, you know, 10 years beyond the peak, kind of five years beyond, six years beyond 1986, which was the equivalent of November 2014, that where the bottom just fell out. And people like myself who were early in my career are saying, man, there's some of these old analysts who remember that super cycle. It was such an aberration. It was just an Arab oil embargo. Look how much damage it did to the world economy and the U.S. economy. And people actually stopped burning oil for power generation. So you actually had huge demand destruction. 
as people built up nuclear, uh, natural gas, and uh, they must have shifted to coal as well in that in that time frame. Um, and that's just not repeatable. And boy, these idiot companies that overinvested returns on capital stinks. At the beginning of my career, returns were seven, eight, nine percent. So actually, better than the zero that they were. But you had more majors. You know, you had whatever fifteen integrated oils between the U.S. and and, and the United States. Um, and for that decade, returns kind of improved. And we all were like, all you should do is cut costs. All you should do is focus on best in class assets. And that just, just some things that are sort of permanently true about that perspective. But that drove the 1990s. You get to, I'm going to get to the 2000s. And we started publishing a report at Goldman, originally called Top 50 Projects, and it became Top 75, Top 100. And we, like everybody, were forecasting 4% non-OPEC growth in 2000. And the actual number that came in was like zero or half a percent. But that year, there was a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. There was some disruption in some country. Nigeria was part of OPEC, but some country had some disruption. So we were able to excuse it. Next year, 2001, published top 75 projects, or maybe it was top 100. And again, 4% non-OPEC growth came in at zero. At some point, you have to ask yourself, okay, what am I getting wrong about my models, right? We are forking. We've done all this work. It was very thoughtful work. It was very in-depth work. What are we getting wrong? And of course, in that environment, all the big guys were saying, we can forever kind of do these brownfield expansions and so forth. And also, you know, and then, but then they started, they, they were all forecasting 5% production growth and delivering zero. And so something was changing. And I believe in that environment, myself and my team were early in recognizing that there was something going on that our models were not capturing. The decline rates seemed to be picking up. There were more delays in the projects. Um, the kind of easy oil of, of you built up this huge hub, and then you just do all the brownfield expansion around it. That just wasn't working on, out. And I, I still remember BP, and you know they had this, this off the top of my head. If they had $6 finding and development costs, which was sort of a good number in that time frame, uh, that would have worked at $20 oil, their view is these numbers are going to $2. And they were credible. They were a credible company. They massively restructured under Lord Brown. Exxon was credible. They were all credible back then. And it seemed believable, except it wasn't working out in the numbers. They weren't delivering the promise. None of them were, not just BP. None of them were. The costs were starting to creep up. And we'd done all this work of going with top 50, top 100 projects. And it was disappointing, not by a little bit. <laughs> the 4% wasn't 3%. It was a little bit like the shale IRRs. We disappointed by 100%, 100%, right? And so, and then, so that was, First observation. Point, observation number two was there was a perception that the only way oil ever would go from twenty to fifty dollar a barrel would be, and I'm not. This is not an exaggeration. The view was Saudi Arabia would have to be destroyed as a country, and then once it's destroyed, the world economy would be destroyed. And um, you know, was that going to be true? Was that not going to be true? I, no one thought Saudi Arabia was going to be destroyed, but was, is that the type of event? You'd have to believe in for higher oil prices, and we kind of crept up to thirty, thirty-five dollars a barrel. And what I observed then too was first we had the observations about the supply side, then I had the observation about the demand side, which is actually demand growth is accelerating. Everybody told us if oil goes up at all, um, demand's going to collapse, and it was because of that 1970s mindset where you didn't have available supply, you actually had geopolitical risk and disruptions that took off large quantities of oil that the world couldn't adjust to. And so you had perpetual recession. This time around, China had just gotten accepted to the WTO. And I remember, I don't have my model in front of me, I think it was 2003 or 2004, China grew by 3 million barrels a day. And I remember all those calls. This is an aberration. 
they're just stockpiling oil. This is a totally unsustainable growth rate for all demand. You should sell and short oil. And then as the next year started happening, the demand numbers were positive. They were not three. So in that respect, it's correct. Your peak growth rate for China was whatever year that was, 2004, 2003, something like that. Three million barrels a day. I'm sorry, that's a global demand number driven by China. Um, and, and my view was, no, you've actually normalized that demand. It's not The relevant consideration is not that you've had your peak growth rate. The relevant consideration is the world economy not only absorbed it, but it's actually driving oil prices higher. So rather that, than that 70s mindset of high oil is only bad, in this case, you're giving too much credit to oil prices. The more important consideration is global GDP expansion and more people moving into the middle class, China being accepted, global trade for lack of it to shorthand it. And that was going to be more important. Then we did the work on, hey, oil prices have actually underperformed the economy for 30 years now. So oil prices, retail gasoline prices, we had them in the U.S., which is most easy, as a percent of consumer spending in the U.S. had fallen from whatever the numbers were, 5% to 2%. And therefore, to get back to 3.5%, which was the midpoint, that was, that was our $50 to $105 call. Um, and $105 was, you know, th- you know, again, it was the midpoint of getting all the way back to the 70s peak and something in between from where we were. And then the 150 to 200 would have been getting fully back to a 1979 peak, which we did not get to. We got to 147, so maybe just the low end of that in 2008, and then we had the great financial crisis and so forth. You know, and so... Again, people, there's so much recency bias as an analyst and as an investor and as public policy people or what have you. So now we're coming off a decade of, um, you know, cheap energy, shale can grow infinitely. Who cares about Canada and Canada pipelines? The countries in the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. And by the way, out of 2019, out of nowhere, it's not just going to be the crazy lefties who do SG. We're all going to do it. Maybe I should calm down on the sarcasm. I actually do think subsidy is needed. It's the virtue signaling part I don't need. But 2019, I don't know why. I don't know if it was um, too many years post-global financial crisis. I don't know if it was because of U.S. politics. I don't know what the reason is. But suddenly the ESG went mainstream. And there's some positives to that. And there's some negatives to that. And the negatives came by form of oil is an unacceptable sector to invest. So now you, if we fast forward to today and what's similar and what's dissimilar, I don't think we're on track with the equivalent of China WTO expansion. That is not the kind of oil boom we're having, right? Whether it is more like the 70s, um, I suspect it is, uh, and whether Russia turning into a pariah state, which is something I've written about, is going to be equivalent to Arab oil embargo, it's not going to be as sudden as quick, probably, Though maybe it will be. We're seeing that perhaps on natural gas out of Russia to Europe. I mean, I think that's that's the thing to to, to wonder about. Um, and I think that's what makes it a different environment than the super spike era. And it's why I don't use that exact terminology. We're, we're not on track for booming global GDP growth. Um, I also think we're not. I agree with Bob McNally's use. I won't repeat it. People can listen to it or maybe they already listened to it. That I don't think there's any evidence that crude oil demand is on track to structurally roll over. And I think we're in a period of structural underinvestment for all the reasons we've already talked about. And therefore, we're going to continue to bump up against, quote, demand destruction prices. There is not a price that is the, quote, demand destruction price. It is a moving target. It's heavily dependent on a range of different factors. It is not just an absolute price. All the work we did at Goldman suggests rate of change also matters. 
So if you had $5 gasoline for three years, and by some miracle, if it was stable, people would get used to it. And then you need to have a spike 50% higher or 100% higher to then affect, quote, demand destruction. But I think that's the environment we're in now. Continuous need to destroy demand. So it is going to be more volatile. This is naturally a 25 to 30% ball. So if you just take, and the way I define that is, take some rolling five-year average or take whatever average you want. Um, but we had a $60 oil price average the last five years, 20% wall, 25, 30% wall, and that moves up to $80, $100, is going to quickly become 20 to $25 swings. And, and I define it as the swing in a quarterly average. And so the point is we went up to 120. That was a three standard deviation move, 60 to 120, was three standard deviations. Uh, we're now having a pullback. Whether we're at the bottom or not, I don't know. I'm a terrible short-term trader, but it's also not crazy to have had a pullback. And I think that is going to be the kind of environment we're in. What is interesting about this environment is more companies are committed to paying out more dividends than they ever have been. I've always thought the top quartile companies would do that. I I've never thought everyone would try and do it. And realistically, everyone can't continue it because they don't have the quality asset base to sustain, sustain it. And I think for individual investors, you're trying to discern that. Who's going to have to, have to give up the ghost faster? That's always a question for a couple of years down the road because they have so underinvested. There probably is still some running room for just about most of these companies to, to continue this for a little bit. But some companies, I think, will be able to sustain and grow these dividends stock buybacks for 10 plus years and others for much shorter periods of time. But that's, that to me is the kind of environment going forward, which is not a China enters WTO booming global GDP growth. I, I think the underinvestment is going to continue because people, including companies and public policymakers, including Canadian oil executives and U.S. oil executives and all the investors on this call and all the public policy and all the economy people all are concerned to different degrees about when crude oil demand is going to, quote, peak. And as long as you have that fear out there, and then when you combine it, with the super ball environment, do this sort of circular reference of structural underinvestment, none of that makes you want to invest more, certainly not in long-term projects. So here I am speaking positively about Canadian oil, arguing for more Canadian oil growth, which is de facto long-term investment, while also articulating uh, an environment of extreme and, and, I th and I think that's going to be the challenge. The world is very short-term. I, since I retired from Goldman and I've been in these different um, spaces, I am shocked at how short-term public policy people are. That you know, even the think tank, I think that's that's been surprising to me. I mean, you know, politicians are because of elections, but the policy folk, I mean, I like they're smart people. Why are they so short-term focused? I, I don't, I don't get it. Right, and so um, super vol environment. I get most excited about the fact that while returns on capital are going to bounce around, I think there's going to be a greater swath of companies generating significantly better returns on capital than the zero percent we saw over the last decade and what is a long-term 50-year average of kind of eight to ten percent returns an eight to ten percent return on capital that is about a cost of capital return if you're an industry that needs to motivate supply growth through investment you and it's a commodity business a cost of capital return is the logical long-term return not a superior return and not a negative return not zero not 20 but we're in for a period here, I don't know whether it's five years or 10 years, by which this weird, weird combination of I think crude oil demand is going to peak. It's a super vol environment, so I'm scared to invest. Uh, we stunk last decade. We have ESG and climate ideologues kind of killing us. Um, we're going to have a longer period of good returns, but it's going to be volatile. 
And that, that I think is going to be the biggest challenge. I think you have to decide for yourself, are you sort of quote buy and hold and, you know, sort of adding on dips and maybe lighting up a little bit on rallies, or are you going to try and trade it? If you're going to try and trade it, it's a totally different conversation than the one we've had so far. And I respect the facts that there are people who are really good at that, of which I'm not in that group. It neither interests me. It's a reason I don't want to go back to working on Wall Street. You, you become de facto short-term oriented for the most part. Um, but anyway, maybe I'll stop there. So, hey, sorry for the long answer again. Hey. No, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, we're going to head over to Hike Energy. Hike, go ahead. Hey, so hey, Ben, Arjun, thanks. Uh, really have enjoyed this space. Um, one of the things, Arjun, I'm curious how you think about is we've been in this 14-year bull market for tech and you know, call it a 14-month bull market for energy. You know, What do you think it takes? And I know some of this is the discipline, some of this is higher returns, but you know, we're still seeing now, now really a buy the dip on the tech side. I'm just curious how you think about as you take a step back just from the energy market, just from the Canadian and U.S. perspective and put like your bigger market hat on. Uh, what would be your thought process or answers around you know, what, we're, what we're calling is really a great reversal? We think that energy can, can really rally for a long period of time and tech has got some headwinds. But curious how you think about things. David, it's uh, great to have you here, and it's been fun uh, reconnecting with you. And thanks for the question. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a great question and a critical question. So, um, you know, I've written about it here, and I'll, I'll try and be not so long-winded. But um, you know, the the, the the return on capital cycles, which is what I care about most from the perspective of this industry, are ten to fifteen years in nature, and it matches um, that cycle of let's just call it energy versus tech. You might call it value versus growth, but I, I think your question is more interesting, which is sort of the energy versus tech. And so, if you, if you, first of all, I think you know this, but just so everyone else is, I am definitely not a tech expert, uh, nor am I a market strategist. There are definitely people who are better at doing that than I. But I have tried to look at some of this stuff, uh, and so from the perspective of someone who writes a for free Substack, um, I, I, I probably make a, a couple points here. So I wrote a note on. Uh, May 21st, I think it was, it was the market corrections one on my Substack, And I looked at kind of, I'm going to get your question. It's sort of like, how did energy perform when kind of bad stuff's happening? And I went through five situations, the Asian financial crisis, Mm -hmm. which I think you'll remember was the Thai bot. So I picked that Thai bot peaking, oil got crushed. It went from 19 to $10. In that environment, energy was flat, but the S&P was up 30% and NASDAQ was up 40%. I'm picking the dates I picked and pick different dates, but energy underperformed with the equity staying flat and badly lagging. Let's just go with NASDAQ composite from the Thai bots peak to, or pre-collapse number, I guess, to its trough. You look at the internet bubble, I picked the NASDAQ peak, which seems logical. That was March 9th. The NASDAQ fell 77%. The S&P fell 43%. Energy fell 17%. So if you're an energy investor, were you happy? You definitely were happier to be an energy investor than a tech investor for owning the S&P. But you still fell 70%. You do the great financial crisis, do the XLF peak, the ETF for the, for the financial sector. That fell 84% from June 1st, 2007 to March 6th, 2009. S&P fell 56%. Energy fell 41%. And if you pick oil's peak in that same crisis, $145 a barrel on July 3rd, 2008, oil fell 77%, the S&P fell 30%, and energy fell 40%. And I'm sorry to go through all these numbers on a Twitter space. This is in my note. But the point being, in some of these cases, energy 
um, outperformed or underperformed, but the sign was kind of the same as the market. Um, if you then just fast forward to today, so if we say unprofitable tech, let's just call that the peak, and I'm going to go with the NASDAQ Composite Index peak. That was November 19th, 2021, including as of Friday. I think I've done this correctly. Uh, this excludes dividends. Uh, the NASDAQ is still down 22%. Energy is up 35%. So I know energy from peak in early June to its most recent trough fell 26%, but it is still up 35%. That is completely at odds with any past correction. Now, I've not gone back because it's harder to get, and I probably need to pay more for the subscription. I, this is all based off Bloomberg. To do to really do the seventies and to see how it involved in that environment because we're not in a tie bot correction where we may be in an internet bubble peak sort of it's definitely not a great financial crisis banks seem much better capitalized um, it's it's not as we just discussed the China WTO advantage so I think the fact that energy is up massively at a time the market is still down considerably even though it's up off its lows you know doesn't seem crazy and in the same way energy had made. Um, counter trend rallies in the last decade. We're like, hey, is this the time? I mean, Goldman, we started this energy conference in January. It seemed to be good luck. I remember for the stocks that, oh, hey, is this the year where 2017 energy is finally back and wasn't 2016 really bad? And we asked that again in 2018 and we asked that again in 2019. And so there's many counter, uh, counter trend rallies. That was a downtrend for energy where energy had noticeable bounce backs where the question was, have we started a new bull market? And the answer was clearly no. Until 2020, I think you have to ask yourself the same. I, I'm not a tech analyst for sure. I'm sure, there are other. Jordan was a former client and a, um, someone who I really used to enjoy interacting with. He does some great Twitter spaces. Listen to him and his calls on any of this stuff uh, for the trading aspect. Um, you know, I, I, to me, it seems like you're having a, a natural sort of adjustment here. Again, at a time where we've never seen energy up 35% in any of these past corrections. When the market's down, but again, I've not gone back and done the '70s, which someone should do. Yeah, um, so actually, I, I, um, I think we're in year one of a or year two of a 15-year period here, Daniel. No, I, I tend to think so too, and I'll, I'll quote some more from like Brad Olson and the Recurrent Energy guys and gals. I actually, just did publish a piece on the 1970s, and since you mentioned it, I'll plug them very happily here. That energy was up 400% and outpaced the broad market by threefold essentially through the 70s and all the way through that time frame you know all of policy you know unfortunately energy doing well is painful for you know Washington DC and the general public generally and i do think that that is the that's the most recent research that i've seen i think it came out in june or july uh, but you can go outside and request the white paper that uh, did they uh, analyze corrections along the way? Because I actually they did, think yeah. No, yeah, it's like that, by, that by year, like, like compounding yeah. of relative yeah. performance in energy versus the broad market. And they didn't even take the nifty fifty. Like if you remember some of Howard Marx's commentary of yeah. you know how how poorly the nifty fifty did, which were the favorite stocks of the time coming out of the late sixties, whenever he moved from equity to bond trading. And you know, he's he's written a, a pretty good summary of, of papers as well. Um, and I, I do enjoy uh, George Noble's pot, you know, Twitter spaces. He's remember him from his Fidelity days. He's definitely very, very thoughtful. So I'll plug that as well. But I was just curious. I've enjoyed your Substack. Yeah. Um, thanks so Thank much. You. You've done a great job getting people on. And I uh, just wanted to ask a quick question. Um, one quick plug. Um, I, I just joined Strive Asset Management. 
And uh, we will be launching an energy ETF this week and ringing the bell at uh, the New York Stock Exchange for the close on Wednesday. So wish us luck as far as attracting funds into the energy space, uh, really just trying to, to be a voice of excellence. And uh, I think you guys and gals on this are, are getting an excellent uh, view of, of how the energy should work and how Canada can fit into that. So uh, thank you all. Uh, Hike, a quick follow-up to that. Maybe, uh, you know, is there going to be any mandates against uh, energy companies within the portfolio? If you could share anything in regards to that, uh, Hike. No, our, our first our first ETF, and, and really Vivek um, has done a whole lot of, of kind of public uh, talks on this. But, I mean, it's really Strive's real focus is just being an excellent um, investor. And I think that you've hit some, like, Reducing scope on emissions, you know, is a, is a good thing. So it isn't, there's no means like the, that investors and, and really we're just trying to offer an alternative. There shouldn't be, you know, red pill, uh, investors. There shouldn't be blue pill investors. There should just be you know, investors that are voting with fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the companies and, and really moving in that position. Um, the ticker is DRLL. Um, and so the, this, the energy ETF launches first for a reason. We do think it has been most misaligned uh, by some of the ESG movement and really the unfairness of the of kind of how we thought about, you know, big E, little s, little g at times. And then a lot of the things that the, the oil and gas sector and energy sector has done to, to really try to improve on reducing emissions and improving uh, themselves and, and some of the enabling that it has done, particularly on the natural gas side. But could go long down that path and we'll have a lot of white papers and thoughts coming out, which is the reason I joined. Um, but we have no mandate against energy. We actually think that North American energy is some of the cleanest, most profitable barrels and MCFs uh, produced. And uh, we think that energy industry, the whole sector uh, should attract more capital as opposed to seeing it fleeing. And so, you know, we think that the uh, this great reversal flows through drill and that we think that there will be an opportunity uh, for you know anybody that has a brokerage account, this isn't an advertisement. Um, you know the, it'll be actively traded um, alongside other passive uh, ETFs, and so oh. same fee structure, same everything. Just really, it's about the vote and engagement that won't be um, trying to enact policy through uh, through stakeholder capitalism. We're really focused on um, excellence capitalism, and that's uh, what we need to do. Thank you, Hike. Uh, so what I'm going to do next is uh, uh, William Lacey, a, uh, a regular contributor within the space, he just he just sent me uh, a quick message here that I think would be really interesting, a question. I would love to hear what he thinks in regards to the cost of capital for the industry. Uh, part of the problem is that sell-side propagated a myth that there was profitability in the sector when there was not through a combination of metrics like pre-tax, 10%, half-cycle break-even pricing, uh, you know, uh, and the ability to flood the sector with limitless uh, capital fed on momentum. Personally, I think the real cost is 20%, especially when you get reflective multiples in the market. Uh, and per what leads to higher cost of capital beyond reflected multiples is a change in cap structure, uh, you know, less slash no debt, uh, referring to pure EMP and not integrated producers. So maybe your thoughts in regards to that, Arjun. I mean, the best thing going for the sector is that everyone still hates it. And now you can say, hey, the stocks are up, the market's down. They can't hate it that much. It's still, uh, it's a sort of tolerated sector by and large. And, and, you know, and, so, you know, and there's, a, there's always the pressure to chase short-term performance. 
which again probably contributes to some of the corrections we're saying. And I, I sort of get all that, but it, it's so it's one of those funny things um, where uh, people hate all the constraints that the government's put on these companies, um, and, and they dislike the ESG investors putting constraints. It's contributed to higher returns on capital. I think it's bad for society to have those constraints. But is it good or bad for profitability? And so far, it's been great for profitability. All the stuff that the federal governments in both the U.S. and Canada are doing to be hostile to the industry, all the ESG virtue signaling that has been hostile to the se sector has been one of the contributors to returns on capital improving. I, I do not think that is good. I, I, I think the tune should be changed if that's not clear after an hour and 15 minutes or whatever we're up to right now that I am in favor of a healthier energy transition. I am in favor of decarbonizing. I am in favor of energy availability, affordability, reliability, security for all. And U.S. and Canada are a huge, huge part of that. But the high cost of capital, to get the direct question, has been a positive. It is keeping companies on the sidelines for a much longer period of time. Now, after having a 0% return capital for, for a decade, and then having COVID, and then having a recovery from COVID, was CapEx going to be up 100%? This year? No, it wasn't. Like, even if we were still in drill baby drill mode, or no one cared anything about climate change, or whatever hurdles you think are out there, um, you know, I do think, though, in here in year two, people would be talking about growth again. And the kind of sort of modest inflation oriented jumps we got in CapEx on the two Q calls, I think those would have been bigger jumps, and people would have been started to crank up their long-term growth expectations. So that has not happened because the cost of capital, quote unquote, is still bad for the sector. And so it's a, it's an, it's a kind of an interesting conundrum for the sector. And I've always described this, it's a bizarro world sector. What's good is bad, this is from Seinfeld, and what's bad is good. Um, it, it doesn't mean that that's what's right or that's what's wrong. I think we should have a healthier energy transition. I think we should have investment in these companies. Um, what will lower the cost of capital for this sector is continuing to generate competitive returns on capital and paying out dividends and stock buybacks. Is that going to stop a correction that could happen of another 20% or whatever number you want to make up? No. The short term is very different than the long term. This sector is massively outperformed. Again, I'm going to refer again to the great call George Noble did with, I think it's the Belkin Report person, and I'm sorry that I, I'm just going to forget his exact name. Yeah, Michael Belkin, yeah. Michael Belkin, he had, a, he had a very specific view that we're headed to deep recession. And S&P earnings are going to get slashed. And it is a very negative view, which I'm not in any way critiquing at all. That's his view. I believe he has a good track record. And if George Noble says he's a good track record, then I'm sure that he does. And I think if you believe that we're headed for a deep recession and S&P earnings are going to get annihilated, then there's no reason energy stocks won't participate in that downside. Again, that's, that is absolutely not a forecast on my part. I'm not making a trading call. I'm just living in a reality here. So what we're talking about then is long-term cost of capital and what this sector needs to do and what it's going to need to do over the next decade. So my personal view is that we're in an environment where you can continue to bump up against demand destruction pricing, that we've not solved, resolved our underlying imbalances of no OPEC spare capacity in an unwillingness to grow supply in the countries you want to grow it, which is Canada first as well as U.S. shale tied for first or second. Both you need, and I like Canada better because it's long-term supply, and it's not dependent on continuous drilling activity, and they have Pathways Alliance. So you're going to have uh, CO2 uh, addressed as part of which it should be addressed as part of that development, which is going to make it more competitive than, than many other regions, and the companies have proven 
that they can generate good full cycle profitability over long periods of time. Right. I think so. These are all the things I think that are going to be the case for the long term. But if the short term, if Mr. Belkin's deep recession, S are getting slashed, I can't remember the number, 107 or something like that, whatever the number was, um, to some low number, then the cost of capital is not getting cheaper. <laughs> it's definitely not getting cheaper. So again, we're talking about how do you how do you lower that cost of capital long term? You do the substantive ESG. You do things like Pathways Alliance to address the CO2 that is in your control, methane emissions for shale producers, and you continue to generate good returns on capital through all those ups and downs and pay out dividends and stock buybacks. It's been absolutely lovely. We're going to try to wrap this up soon. Mark, go ahead, and then uh, we'll do a quick time check. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, thanks so much, Arjun. And, and I just wanted to add, you know, just, um, you know, what you and Bob McNally had talked about, Bob talks about in his book, Crude Volatility, is, is the need for a swing producer and, and the investment required for that. And if you look at specifically, you know, Canadian heavy oil, which has the ability, you know, to, to pump and add, you know, 40,000, 60,000 barrels at a time with, a, you know, a one project, uh, you know, approval. Uh, you know, and just off the back of the, the napkin kind of math, if you're looking at, you know, with inflation adjusted from the projects that came on from 2010 to 2014, you're looking at maybe 2.5 to 3 billion for a 60,000 60, barrel per day project. You know, from the time of, uh, you know, engineering design to commission and startup, you're looking at three to five years, uh, you know, if you have the workforce. But, you know, over the last seven years, we've seen a mass exodus of not only the, the labor force, but also the intelligentsia in the in the oil and gas sector, especially you know Canadian oil and gas. So you know we talk about the bull cycle and 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 how this commodities are inherently cyclical. But you know to flood the market from Canada's perspective, you know not even considering egress issues um, and regulatory downwind you know um, pressures. Where are you going to find the workers? You know for this huge upfront capital spend. Like does this? Do you see any? turnaround for this because there's you know less and less people uh, taking uh, oil and gas engineering and less and less people wanting to come back and, and work on a drilling rig and a pad rig uh, and even a, a central processing facility up in uh, uh, the, the Muskeg area of uh, uh, Wood Buffalo. I, I mean, so I, I'll say it's a, it's a great question. And I think um, it is one of the reasons any supply response can't be quick. So even if you had no, you know, if you had total government support, and investors like, yeah, let's go back to drill, baby, drill, and grow because you guys are generating good return. Even if you had that, from a practical standpoint, there's going to be a ramp up period. So I, I'd say this again: throughout my 30 year career, I've consistently heard about the quote grain of the industry. It has been talked about before, and in part, it's natural to talk about it because the cycles are 10 to 15 years in duration. So we've had 10 to 15 year downturns before where you've accelerated retirements and you've not attracted new people to industry. We can say this time is different because supposedly the young are more concerned about climate change. Is that true? I look at my kids, they're on their devices 24 hours a day. There's nothing low energy about anything they're doing. They take Ubers everywhere. What energy are they saving? Um, you know, so I, I'm, you know, um, people are absolutely going to need energy. No one is ever going to be able to. People can't live five minutes without energy. Like I live in a state where we regularly have our power will go out once a year for at least a couple of days. And it is like the world is freaking ended. Right. And, and this is this is a, the U.S. Northeast, for God's sakes. Right. So what's it like for people in the rest? So no one. We are going to we are again learning the lesson 
of the critical importance of energy availability is absolutely the number one issue for solving for. We're not solving for anything else. It has to be available. Then it has to be affordable. And as part of being affordable, it has to be reliable and secure. And then once you've got those, it should, it absolutely should come with as small of an environmental and climate footprint as possible. But you have to get that ordering right. And I do think we can walk and chew gum and do all of it. I think we absolutely can, uh, you know, can, can do all of it. Um, but so it's going to be critical upon the industry to attract people. And this is where substantive ESG is relevant. I mean, you, you don't see a ton of women at the senior ranks of these companies, and you see more at the mid ranks. But, but why can't women work at all companies? Um, why can't you attract people from different parts of the world? I mean, Canada, I think, has a, my senses. Uh, you guys are the experts. I'm definitely not an expert on Canadian immigration. But it seems like Canada as a country welcomes people from around the world. You know, it's a, you know no one wants to work at a Canadian oil company. And um, today you need technology skills as much as you need engineering and petroleum ge geophysical skills. Now, those types of folks are probably still more attracted to the Googles and, uh, and those types of companies. I think industry has to figure out ways to communicate more broadly, to attract a broad. I think it's a critical issue companies face. I, I, I don't think companies can just go crying, oh, governments hate us in this respect. Um, in other industries, you see CEOs out there talking about their sectors, uh, uh, engaging with people. And sometimes it's not always great. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it is okay. This is a very insular industry. And if they're going to want to attract people from around the world, which is going to be critically needed, they have to engage. And they have to make their companies attractive. And that might represent a different style of how you run your company. I do not work at an all company. I'm not trying to speak inappropriately to how companies are going to go about this. All I'm saying is, they, there is a need to attract people, but this sort of grain of industry, we've heard that many times in my career, and it usually comes at the end of a down cycle, at the start of a new, new up cycle. So I have no doubt, I believe in capitalism, high returns on capital will ultimately attract both investors and people back to this industry. It is just going to take longer because the world is obsessed with this idea that you're trying to solve for CO2 first before you have provided energy availability to all. You're going to have to provide the however many billion people, seven, eight billion people, plus the two that are coming. You're going to have to give them energy first. Now, can you do that and try and do it in a more CO2 friendly way? Like here, here in New York and New Jersey, I, I would love to have a heat pump that then doesn't go out every time. The yeah, I'd be totally into in, into studying that technology. Can I dig a geothermal well and control the heating and cooling so I don't suffer these JCPNL blackouts? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. So we can have some of this new stuff. But the idea that you're going to electrify everything and the underlying source is going to be solar wind is a complete joke. Like no one could possibly take that seriously. And I've been critical of well IRRs. Go look at LCOE. You want to look at a metric that is fundamentally, there's no chance an intermittent resource is the lowest cost resource. There's zero chance of that. If it works 10 or 20 or 30% of the time, by definition, it is an infinite cost the other 70, 80 or 90% of the time. You want to build in batteries? Want to build another forms of storage? Make sure you count the high-speed high transmission lines, all that, and all the delays that go into permitting all that stuff. There's no chance it's low cost, right? But so the industry is going to have to attract people back to itself, and that that is actually the responsibility of the companies to figure that out to make themselves attractive. But as we have good returns on capital, investors and people will come back to the sector in a big way. So.
Arjun, uh, we really uh, uh, have been collectively blessed with the material you've shared with us today, and we're really grateful. I uh, just wanted to just touch base with you and see how we're doing for time. Could we? Is there a little bit of time? You know, initially we were kind of aiming for the one hour mark. Uh, we're, we're at one. Uh, could we do two questions and wrap it up? Is that okay? Why don't we do two questions, and I'll be good about being more disciplined on my answers. So two more <laughs> questions, and we'll be good. So. I'll take uh, the blame. So. We've got uh, William on stage here, and uh, over to you, William. Thank you. Arjun, this is more just a comment versus a question to you. Um, I started in the industry on the investment banking side in 1999 in Canada when things got very, very dark. Uh, so obviously, seen the cycles as well. But um, I just wanted to make a comment to thank you for actually taking the time to be a part of a space like this. The energy space is not well covered, as you know. It's become a much smaller pool. And the fact that you are willing to spend your time, I remember when I was working in the industry, people would be lining up trying to talk to you and to have the ability to listen to you speak on these points and really bring a lot of context and color to these various hot topics that come through the space is really a very differentiating thing. And so, Personally, I would like to thank you, and I'm always blown away by these spaces. And for everybody who's on this space, share the recording far and wide. There's a ton of knowledge to be garnered from this, and you do not get the opportunity to speak with world-leading minds, of which Arjun is one of them, uh, to have questions answered by a person of his caliber. So thank you for taking the time. It is Sunday. It is a time when people like to take time off and rest. And for you to afford this sort of access and availability is truly wonderful. So thank you. William, thank, thank you very much. That is very kind of you. It's definitely not, um, I, I, um, really, uh, I'm, I, um, I don't know what to say. I'm at a loss for words. I thank you much for such, such kind words. I'd say, um, you know, again, I think there is a need. I feel like people like myself can't simply complain quietly to my 10 friends that I play golf with who agree with me that this government stinks or this thing's too extreme or, or that's too extreme. And we're all the quote moderates or pragmatists. I think there is a need to engage. And I, I really do appreciate your very kind about myself. Um, I do think there is a need for more people to engage. I think one of the things that attracted me to this space, which is definitely not a natural thing for me to ever want to do, um, would be what Sohaib and Mark have put together and some of the, and probably all the people that listen in and participate. But I think the spaces I've listened to the Bog McNally ones. I mean, I think this is, it's one small thing that's needed. Um, I think more, I think if you know something about this industry, whether it's good or bad, I think there's an urgent, urgent need to speak up and to participate. And I personally feel an obligation to that. Uh, you know, I usually credit sort of Goldman Sachs and my Wall Street career with, um, you know, the blessings that I have. I credit my parents. But I also need to credit the oil and gas industry and, and all the great people uh, disproportionately from Texas, some from Oklahoma, but also from Calgary, who have made my career so enjoyable. So, um, you know, I have criticisms for the industry. I have support for the industry. But I do think there's a need for people to speak out. And, and frankly, I'd love to see the right people in industry. Some of the CEOs, Toby Rice is an example of someone doing a good job uh, speaking out proactively uh, about the contributions essentially makes. I think it's critically needed, but thank you very much, William, for your very kind remarks. And it's a great platform where you can actually use fact-based 
work to actually start to educate people and with the platform that you have and others have to be able to share that information in a really non-confrontational way, I think is great. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. I think a great way to just uh, to end to just to segue into this uh, close, which I think is you know um, William, thank you so much for that uh, in, in in sharing uh, you know what what's been provided collectively to all of us. Is just to maybe uh, for the Canadian energy investors in the room that are currently seeing maybe better performance on the American side, despite seeing better profitability and sustaining asset base that you've mentioned, uh, would you be able to just maybe share uh, a couple of your insights as to maybe you you think that. It, the, some of the Canadian energy uh, uh, companies will start to be able to draw um, better attention um, from from uh, you know the the American capitals that are deploying their capital in this space of seeing maybe you know these are significantly undervalued companies that are worth uh, deploying capital to Arjun. I think that would be a great way to wrap it up. Thank you, Arjun. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. With the with the full caveat that I'm definitely not giving investment advice, I think here are just my observations from having seen this over many, many years is because, unfortunately, and incorrectly, my view, Canada has the perception of being the, quote, high cost barrel. Um, and that's been the historic concern. And now it has the tagline of dirtiest barrel, both points, as you know, uh, I fully disagree with. But it, it, I think, therefore, it takes longer for investors to come back. So they First, have to become more bullish on the stocks they know best, which are the, going to be the American stocks to the extent American capital markets are what dominate here. And it's very hard to know the exact timeframes by which these things play out. Again, if we have deep recession next year, it could weigh on everything. That's not, not necessarily my personal strong bias that we're going to or not. Uh, but these are the kind of things that kind of, I think, make the timeframes very difficult. I think what would make me most encouraged is just seeing the, the fundamentals of what these companies are doing. I mean, you know, with a shale EMP, you do always have the risk that you misjudge the quality of the inventory. Now, you can misjudge it positively, it could turn out better. But for, perhaps for some of the guys who are paying out a lot of dividends, um, perhaps it might disappoint at some point. I don't think that's a 22 risk. You know, there's 23 or 24 or 25. We could probably debate. Whereas with the Canadian oils, you kind of have this sort of nebulous, will your federal government do bad things to you risk? And will you get pipeline access? Like that's the bigger issue. It's much less of a resource, which, which is kind of a weird dynamic, right? Usually when you're thinking about energy investing, you're thinking about the quality of the assets. You always care about geopolitical risk, but it's kind of uniquely flipped in Canada where a country that is inherently geopolitically extremely stable, very nice. <laughs> Why? anyone wouldn't want more Canadian oil is beyond my ability to understand. You do have a government that does not seem to be super excited about encouraging investment. I could be wrong. I'm not Canadian. I'm not an expert on Canada politics. So I'm viewing this from a distance. And if I am wrong about that, I'm happy to be corrected because I'd like to be wrong about that. You know, and so I don't know those dynamics. I'm not exactly an expert on when you have elections and when that could change. Um, but so the, um, the companies are doing all the right things. They don't have the same risks in terms of the resource base that U.S. companies have. That should be a point in its favor. They're tagged with the high cost thing. I don't think that's going to change. It's wrong, but it's going to take time for that to change. But they've got the returns. They've got the free cash flow. They've got the dividends. They're doing almost all the right things. And where they've had challenges, Suncor's uh, documented HSC issues as an example. I used to be a big fan of Suncor when Steve Williams was running it and I was a Goldman analyst. I've not followed it as closely uh, since I retired, and I know there's been some changes, 
But where there have been issues, they're trying to address it to their credit, whether they, and they need to address it to, again to their credit. Um, you know, and, and so I, it, it's probably a little bit of a, what's your time horizon? I think if one has a shorter term time horizon, it's much trickier, and you should listen to different spaces that gives you better insight into what kind of correction or not, and exactly how to time the pullbacks or what have you. I think we'll if we got to 2030, if Sohaib's willing and Mark are willing to invite me back in 2030 to look back on, were you happy or unhappy to have owned U.S. and Canadian stocks for the past decade with all the ups and downs you're going to have? In the same way, I think Hike was referencing some analysis from the 70s. I believe we'll look back in 2030. It's how I approach my personal situation. Um, but that's not everyone's ability to do that. That's not what everyone's interested in. That's not everyone's viewpoint. And I, you know, I think so. I think those would be some of the considerations to to think about. The companies are doing all the right things. You're going to have to get through this federal government risk that you have, kind of uniquely with your government at this moment. To 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 a different degree, also the U.S. government needs to be more supportive of cross border pipelines. You absolutely need that. But you could do pipelines to the West again. That seems like a Canada issue, not a U.S. issue. Um, and, you know, and so those are the kind of risks that I think probably Canadian investors are going to be able to better have a viewpoint on. Than, than someone like myself. I do hope for the sake of the world that there is a recognition on the people in Canada who have some control over this, that your barrels are good barrels, that your barrels are going to be cleaner barrels, that they're not going to be worse on a CO2 basis. They're probably going to be better, actually, that when you do have HSC issues, you deal with it, um, and that we need more Canadian barrels. We need more Canadian LNG. That is good for the billions. It's not just good for Americans. We definitely need it. But it's, it's, more good. it's better for the billions of people in the rest of the world who are currently energy poor, or at least not as energy rich as they would like to be. And so, again, I thank everyone for listening. I definitely thank the people from the field. I think that's awesome. Um, I, I again, appreciate you inviting me to speak uh, and to participate in this spaces. Thank you, Sohaib and Mark. I, I really enjoyed the time. Absolutely. We're really grateful. Uh, we have been really grateful to have uh, Arjun join us. Uh, you know, we were aiming initially for 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 for, for an hour to an hour thirty minutes. Uh, you know, uh, our, our apologies for a little overextending. Uh, well, the, the audience got really really excited. I'll pass it over to you, Mark. If you have any you know closing thoughts, and that'll be it for today. Uh, feel free to share the recording far and wide. Also, keep in mind that Arjun's got a wonderful Substack uh, where he regularly shares his thoughts on, along with uh, uh, their complimentary. Uh, um, you know, sort of like a podcast style where he speaks straight into camera and shares his uh, thoughts uh, unfiltered. So um, it's called Super Spiked, and uh, you can go on to his profile and you'll find the link there. Mark, if you wanted to share a couple of your words, uh, a couple of words as co-host, uh, or we could just leave it at that, and uh, we could all make uh, make our way to a, the rest of our uh, Sunday uh, afternoon. Yeah, no, just short and sweet. Thanks so much, Arjun. Really appreciate it. On a, just to echo William's words, who's a you know, a de facto lead of ours. You should look into his history. He's quite, uh, quite, quite uh, educated, and uh, we love his help as well. But uh, you know, thanks so much for taking the time. It's it's really uh, humbling, and you know, it, it makes us feel good to have uh, such a character of your you know esteem. Uh, you know, championing the, the Canadian sector. You know, we don't get a lot, as you said. We kind of you know mind our p's and q's and say sorry way too many times. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for doing all the due diligence on us. And, and you're welcome back at any time. You know, Twitter can be a, a cesspool, but it can be such a, a powerful medium for sharing uh, bright ideas and, and laughs. So thanks so much. Thank, thank you, guys. And uh, really appreciate it. Have a, have a great afternoon. All right. All the best, everybody. Till next time.